As the COVID-19 pandemic enters its second year and many of us Canadians contend with our third or fourth lockdown, there may be a light at the end of the tunnel as vaccines are rolled out across the country. It's more important now than ever that confidence in those vaccines remains high and that everyone who's eligible get one as soon as they possibly can. Now, one of the big stumbling blocks to that vaccine confidence is misinformation and disinformation, two things that tend to become much more widespread and prevalent during times of fear. Add to that our current social media climate where this kind of thing spreads more quickly and is amplified more loudly in echo chambers. And dif- disinformation has become, uh, in its own right, a public health crisis. Taking this crisis on is the team at Science Up First, an online group of experts in a variety of fields. Science Up First not only puts out properly backed scientific information from experts, but also takes on disinformation and misinformation from those who are decidedly not experts. My name is Eric. I am not an expert. I'm the communications specialist at the Canadian Psychological Association. Today, I'm going to speak with two of those very smart people on the Science Up First team as we launch the spring series of Mindful. Science Up First has a team of experts from dozens of backgrounds ensuring that there is a place online for scientific fact when it comes to COVID-19 and the vaccines that are currently being distributed around the world. I got to speak with two of them. My name is Krishana Sankar, and I have a PhD in cellular and molecular biology. Um, I'm currently uh, the science advisor and community um, partnerships lead for Science Up First. My name is Jonathan Stea. I'm um, a clinical psychologist registered and practicing in Calgary, Alberta, and an adjunct assistant uh, professor at the University of Calgary. So I work in a tertiary care center where we treat um, concurrent addictive and psychiatric disorders. That's my day job. And then on the side, I have a a fascination and interest in science communication with respect to debunking misinformation as it relates to health misinformation, especially with respect to mental health and addiction. And Science Up First has been going for a while now, Uh, certainly throughout COVID uh, has become more and more relevant. I'm wondering if either of you have a sense of what kind of impact Science Up First has had so far. Well, we, yeah, so it launched in late January, late January, I think the last week, and we do have a team kind of tracking the metrics on uh, a variety of different metrics. With, re- with respect to social media, I know that within the first week, I don't have the updated ones on me, but the first week, I think our, uh, the launch it transmitted to at least 40, over 42 million views online, just through a uh, collective efforts on across social media platforms. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, eventually we're going to branch out to TikTok, but we're not quite there. But yeah, even in that first week, it really uh, impacted a lot. And so that's really great. And so the whole campaign is an anti-misinformation campaign predicated on the idea that debunking works and we have good, good evidence that it does work if it's done right. And so we do follow kind of evidence-based guidelines on that, which has been delineated by Timothy Caulfield, who's a, um, a public health uh, scholar at the University of Alberta. And as you've been going about four or five months now, uh, obviously there are new conspiracies arising, new misinformation that uh, shows up out there. And Krishana, what are the uh, what are the top things that you're seeing right now that you're constantly having to debunk to talk about uh, with people? 
Yeah, so um, there, there's quite a few uh, bits of misinformation that's been floating around, but more recently, um, a couple of them, actually just a couple of days ago, I was asked to comment on vaccine shedding. Um, so that's one that's uh, been currently circulating. Um, and so essentially, it's a, it's a trope that the anti-vax community has been using where they're um, you know, basically fostering uh, fear and distrust in the vaccines, um, having people think or believe that the vaccines contain viruses, live viruses that can shed and then be somehow um, transmitted to unvaccinated people. Um, we know this to be absolutely false because none of the vaccines that are authorized for use in the U.S. and Canada, um, they're not live vaccines, number one. Um, and number two, that's not the way they work. Essentially, it's genetic material from the vaccines that are put into, you know, when we're injected into the muscle, it's just a piece of genetic material that creates a spike protein that, you know, elicits this immune response. So there's absolutely no vaccine shedding happening. People who are vaccinated vaccinated are safe to be around. Um, so that was one big piece of misinformation floating around. Another one that still seems to be floating around is um, whether the mRNA vaccines, uh, so the mRNA in the mRNA vaccines can um, alter our DNA. And that's something else we know that to be false, um, because the way in which our bodies work, it's DNA to mRNA to protein. And it's a one way, you know, it's a one way street, it's one forward path, nothing goes backwards, your mRNA can't get into your nucleus where your DNA DNA is housed. Um, so, you know, mRNA can't, you know, alter your DNA. Um, so that's another piece of misinformation. Um, and a third one is this fertility piece, which, um, you know, this one, they're all dangerous, but this one in particular um, affects a lot of uh, women who, you know, they come on vaccine Q&A calls that I do and a lot of questions we get at Science Hub first around infertility. So whether the vaccines can cause infertility, once again, we know this to be untrue. Um, and so this, ten, I think this was started around, um, you know, people thinking that some portion of the spike protein, you know, is similar to this other protein found on the placenta and that, you know, the vaccine can interact with it, but that's not the case. Um, so the vaccines are safe, uh, especially when it comes to that, it, it won't cause any infertility in women. And so something like that, I, I believe I, I read that women actually became pregnant during the trials and then carried their babies to term. So there's exactly. very obvious evidence that this is not the case. Uh, and what I wonder about, though, is the way that this comes to be. So, Jonathan, I'm hoping you can answer this for me, is when you when you get a trope like this that's out there that you see, uh, you know, it's going to cause infertility because I've made the connection between this type of protein and this type of protein, and then I've just extrapolated is it somebody who's genuinely not understanding the science, but is just trying to put things together themselves, who've created a false narrative? Or is it somebody who's specifically trying to create that false narrative for a reason, because they are anti-vaccine or because, uh, you know, what do you think is, is the main driver of that kind of thing? A great question. And it's, it's loaded, right? And a lot of these... Like, like with the vaccine shedding, like that's an old trope, right? And it, and it just came back with COVID-19. Like that's, that's been one that's been around for a while. I just, I posted on social media. I found a cartoon from 1802 about the smallpox uh, and, and cowpox vaccine and, and saying um, it was an illustration. It was satire showing how cows are growing out of people's uh, limbs and bodies. And, and it, the anti-vaccine 
um, community kind of latches on to these particular ideas and then they can just reapply it. So now it's not cows, it's bats or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, ch- or changing our DNA in some way, like the MNRA vaccine. So um, it's really hard to know. It kind of, it, it leads to this idea of vaccine skepticism, um, which I think is best conceptualized on a spectrum. So it, we do have these anti-vaccine tropes at kind of one extreme, which are kind of really extreme uh, rigid views that are that are a form of dis, disinformation. So it's sort of beliefs that are put out there as propaganda, essentially, to, to cajole and to influence um, audiences with a particular agenda in mind. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's just a very normal, uh, everyday um, skepticism that people might have, because a lot of people uh, including myself, don't completely understand all of the science behind the intricacies of how vaccines work and things like that. And, and so um, that's very uh, normal. And so that's why campaigns like this are so important, because we have to have, we have to have um, trusted sources to help us learn and understand how vaccines work and to get accurate information out there to help answer some of these questions. So um, I think that it's it does lie on that spectrum. We also know that you know during times of kind of heightened fear, like a, a pandemic, a global pandemic, those kinds of conspiracy type beliefs tend to run rampant, right? Because there's a lot of fear and uncertainty around everyone, and so the brain needs closure. It needs it needs kind of answers. It's you know it's fear of the unknown, and so that's why conspiracy theories start to rear their head a bit, and so there can be individual differences between people with respect to how likely you are to fall for things like misinformation and conspiracy theories. So there's, there's a lot of kind of factors at play here, right? Like there's, there's the individual level, which is things inside of me, like how prone am I to misinformation? How prone am I to having conspiracy mentality? You know, how prone am I to use intuition rather than critical thinking when I'm evaluating a piece of evidence, those are kinds of things inside of me. And then that interacts with, uh, external factors that are happening in the environment, the outside world. So racial and social inequities that can, you know, it, during those times, um, people are looking for answers. And so um, it's easy to fall down rabbit holes to, to look for answers there. And then again, like in a pandemic, when there's a lot of fear and uncertainty, um, there's also things like echo chambers and even the structure of social networks themselves, like how Twitter and Facebook amplify or highlight certain messages or don't like there's just so many interacting factors here so that was a really tangential way of <laughs> answering that question but it was a great one well um, and i think all of that makes sense you I mean you were talking about you know seeing a cartoon from the 1800s with this i, <laughs> I remember reading in uh, dr stephen taylor's excellent book the psychology of pandemics an article that was printed in the new york times in 1918 or 1919 during that flu pandemic where uh, an actual health official was saying that he believed Germans were coming to shore in U-boats and sneaking into New York City, going to theaters and movie productions, or I guess theater productions at the time, and spreading the germs themselves, then sneaking back into their U-boats and taking off, right? So yes. I don't think, uh, I think it's, it's something that happens constantly. There were two things that you said uh, that I want to talk about, though. You, you mentioned... Uh, vaccine skepticism and uh, racialized communities. And Krishana, uh, you told me a little while ago 
uh, that there are certain terminology that we're trying to steer away from, right? The, we don't use vaccine hesitancy as much anymore, specifically because of the impact that it has on uh, racialized communities. I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit more about that and what's the reasoning. Yeah. So um, I know, uh, of course, a lot of the um, a lot of discussion was initially around vaccine hesitancy and hesitancy, just meaning, um, you know, it, it's it, like Jonathan mentioned before, the skepticism is on the spectrum. And so some people have um, hesitancy for obvious reasons. And so I typically as um, someone who, um, you know, goes on vaccine Q&A calls as an expert, try to steer away from using the word hesitancy when it comes to certain populations, just because we need to realize that, you know, this entire topic is extremely nuanced and complex. Um, when it comes to specific communities, like the racialized communities, a lot of people have actually faced and experienced, um, you know, a lot of discrimination and um, experimentation at the hands of our healthcare system, um, specifically our Indigenous communities and our Black communities um, here in Canada and in the U.S. Um, there are other communities, too, that have experienced this, um, other racial communities. So for example, the South Asian communities in different parts of the world as well. Um, and so when you're on these calls, for example, I'll give you an example on a vaccine Q&A call where I will um, be a facilitator or an expert on the calls. Sometimes we get questions around the vaccines and the questions are actually coming from a place of, okay, well, how can I trust that this vaccine or these vaccines um, have already been, you know, in the clinical trials have been, um, you know, our populations have been represented in the clinical trials. Am I the first one to actually, you know, or, we, or are we the first ones in our population to actually get this vaccine outside of the clinical trial? Does that mean that we are being guinea pigs? Completely, completely valid question, valid concerns, because these things have happened in the past, um, where a lot of this type of thing has happened to the different communities, like I mentioned before, in our healthcare system. And so that mistrust and this distrust um, is there for obvious reasons. So it's very, you know, it, it's important to recognize that it's around vaccine confidence or empowering people with the education and the knowledge of what's actually happening during the vaccine development, clinical trials, and then being able to, you know, educate and, and share information around the science behind the vaccines to these particular communities. So when um, addressing these issues with the communities, it's more around having that conversation with them um, and being able, thankfully, within these clinical trials to say, you know, actually, our different populations and, and demographics were um, in the clinical trials. So, you know, there were uh, smaller percentages, but we were represented in clinical trials. There are different people and different populations in the clinical trials, which I think is really important for a lot of people to know so that they can feel more comfortable and confident in knowing that they're not the first ones to receive this vaccine and be experimented on. So it's not so much hesitation um, for a lot of people, more so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's more on the experts and the government and everyone else to provide this information to people to empower them and give them confidence um, around the vaccines. And so that's for me personally, and also among quite a few of my colleagues, why we're trying to stay, steer clear of the term hesitancy um, and go more towards confidence. 
Um, and then also currently what we're seeing here in, in parts of Canada, and I can speak more particularly to Ontario, is there's an issue of access. So a lot of people are actually wanting to get the vaccine and going to get it, but they have an issue of access, which is a completely, you know, a whole different topic on its own. Um, and so I think that's why it's also important not to refer to certain communities as hesitant because their, you know, their issue right now is actually, you know, not hesitancy, <laughs> their issue is access right now. So, but these, uh, the vaccine education type programs need to continue to complement the vaccine rollout, because people will always have questions, which is normal and valid. Um, and so we should be able to be there to, to answer the questions that they have. For sure. And uh, I think a lot about the, especially the Indigenous community here in Canada, uh, because when the government did roll out this vaccine program, they wanted to make sure that the Indigenous community was represented because historically they haven't been. Uh, and so they prioritized that. But I'm also thinking that from the point of view of the Indigenous community, well, you're giving it to us first. Historically, that's not a great thing for this community. Uh, what kind of message uh, do you think Actually, Jonathan, is that something where maybe a psychologist having been involved from the very beginning might have been able to roll that out a little bit differently and, and create more confidence? I, I don't have a good answer for that. I think it's such a fascinating layer to this topic, like from from a psychological standpoint, um, you know, at, at the because I think those are those are more like sociological levels of analysis, right? And how do we roll this out at a public health level of analysis? And those are super important. At the individual level of analysis, I've written a bit about motivational interviewing and how to address kind of, I guess I don't want to use vaccine hesitancy, but sort of vaccine skepticism or questions around that, um, because we know from a psychological perspective, like you know, force feeding and being heavily directive and telling people what to do doesn't work. That's the idea of psychological reactance. When you tell someone what to do, that they're tempted to do the opposite. So um, something like motivational interviewing, which is really just a, a really empathic, what's called client-centered or person-centered uh, communication style, using that with friends, with family, with um, patients on you know, maternity wards, whatever it might be, that um, there's actually good evidence that uh, motivational interviewing can help with vaccine decisions. And so I think that that's another kind of layer to at the individual level analysis that people ought to be using. Now, when we're talking about motivation, how do you feel about bribery? I see <laughs> that there are some American states right now that are giving you a pint of beer if you get your vaccine. Is that something that's going to work? Is that a great motivational factor? I will get my vaccine one way or the other. I have not yet got it. I'm on the waiting list. But if they gave me a beer when I got it, I'd be just a little more happy. But it's not going to be the decision-making uh, thing for me. Is it going to be for some people? You know, that, that's an empirical question. Super fascinating. I don't know. But you know what's really curious about that is if you look at other areas of the literature, there's something called contingency management, uh, which is an intervention in the addiction kind of world. And so that's basically giving people rewards or vouchers for things like abstinent urine drug screens or things like that. And there's actually solid evidence behind that. And it's kind of counterintuitive because the, the reinforcement is external. It's outside of a person. And a lot of what we do in psychotherapy is trying to increase internal motivation, right? And I think 
you know, good therapy is using both. We want external and internal rewards. So things like giving a beer for vaccine, I don't know, but it's still kind of, it's predicated on this really behavioral psychology idea that we want to give rewards. And then that's going to result in reinforcing behavior. But again, the, 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 the topic of vaccines is just so complicated that it's hard to know. And I think that needs to be studied empirically. And I think it shouldn't, it certainly shouldn't be the only <laughs> method that we use, but, but I don't know. It, it's not, you know, when I first heard that, like you said, I was like, what the hell is this? This is not going to work, but then it's not, you know, it's kind of based on this idea of contingency management. So who knows anything to get people vaccinated at this point, that's kind of not going to be destructive and damaging. Right. And I think a lot of it has to do with people who not necessarily people who are very hardcore will not get the vaccine are, you know, super against it, but the ones who are pushing it off. Okay. I'll wait. Uh, I'll, you know, take my time and don't consider it to be something urgent. Maybe they're, uh, maybe they will be the ones that are convinced by this. And I, Krishana, yeah. that's one of the questions that I have is right now, one of the things that I'm seeing is the reason that we want to do this so quickly, right? The reason we want to have so many people vaccinated as fast as possible is to prevent other strains of the, uh, of the virus from taking over, from, you know, becoming something that we can't control. We want to reach what I'm hearing is called herd immunity, but I don't really know what herd immunity is. And now I'm hearing a lot of people saying we're never going to get there right? Because globally, we cannot vaccinate enough people quickly. And unless the entire globe is vaccinated, we aren't safe, right? Is that true? Are we not going to get to herd immunity? And if we don't get there, what are the consequences? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And I would say probably also another loaded question. Um, yeah, so when, it, you know, obviously, I would say in the beginning, um, the goal is always to reach herd immunity via vaccination. And, and that and the whole idea around it is so that we can all be protected and protect those people who can't get the vaccine, because we do know there is going to be a subset of the population who's unable to get the vaccine for various reasons. And so, um, and it's extremely important, like you po pointed out, for a lot of people who can get the vaccine to get vaccinated, because as we're seeing right now, variants are popping up all over. Now, this was expected viruses mutate, um, but this particular virus in comparison to the flu virus, for example, doesn't tend to mutate as quickly. But the reason why we're seeing more and more mutations is because of transmission and spread. So the more a virus is able to transmit and spread, the, more the, the higher the likelihood of the virus to mutate. Um, and so that's why we're seeing all these different variants and strains coming about. Now, the issue is, for example, uh, you know, some of the vaccines were made prior to these variants making an appearance. And some of them, for example, the AstraZeneca and the J&J vaccines actually were in clinical trials with some variants uh, when some of the variants, you know, started to make an appearance. So the variants that um, were discovered in the UK, in uh, South Africa and Brazil. So all of that to say is we know right now, uh, you know, quite a few of the companies are making booster shots for these variants. And so when it comes to herd immunity, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we could reach it. I don't know if we can. I don't know what the answer to that is. I think it would have been obvious that we could have, you know, had the supply been there for all the countries in the world <laughs> to get all the vaccines we needed, right? But as we can see right now, one huge issue that's been all over the news is the issue happening in 
India. Um, extremely, extremely sad situation. Um, you know, many, many people dying, many, many cases, you know, on a daily basis, so many people without, you know, access to hospital beds and oxygen, you know, like what things we probably take for granted in, you know, countries, the US and Canada, they don't have access to that. And so if we are unable to get, you know, a lot of these things under control, yes, it will be extremely difficult for us to get herd immunity. Now, a couple of things, if we are able to start to vaccinate as much people as possible, uh, we get booster shots that are needed for variants and we're able to get into, into the arms of many people, um, we will start to see a decline in cases and then hopefully a decline in spread and transmission, which means hopefully a decline in variants being formed. Also, another important piece, I think, is right now, um, I think it was Pfizer and was it uh, Moderna or J&J? I can't recall the other company. But this week, a couple of the companies were actually looking at their clinical trials or their studies that came out with looking at vaccination in children from about 12 years and up. So some of them were already um, authorized for use from the ages of either 16 or 18, depending on the vaccine. And then they started to look at the use of vaccines in kids from about 12 years and up and some companies even younger and up. And so we're starting to see data coming out uh, that looks really promising for use of these vaccinations in children. And I think that's another, that's going to be another really important piece because as you recall last year, when we were going into that second wave, but, you know, a lot of the controversy around, should we keep schools open? Should we, you know, have schools closed? And we had this massive explosion of transmission, um, you know, of, of, of COVID-19. And that was because, you know, we opened schools without being quite ready to deal with transmission of the virus. And so I think another important piece of this and, and potential of reaching some kind of herd immunity, if, if not, but hopefully, uh, we'll be looking at vaccines in kids. So being able to vaccinate children, I think that's going to be the next step uh, going forward. And another thing that I was seeing recently, and I'm not 100% sure how this works, but it looks like uh, in the States, the Biden administration has I guess, publicized the vaccines, right? Taken away the patent uh, from specifically the companies, allowing other companies uh, to have the recipe and make a generic version of the vaccines so that they can actually produce it in their own countries. Uh, am I getting that right? Is that uh, basically what's happening there? Just to increase the global supply. Right. So um, I, I, I myself need to to be honest with you, educate myself more on this. But what I know is a, a lot of waivers have been signed. And, and it's like a petition has been going around to, uh, to sign a waiver on the patents in the US. So I'm not quite sure right now. I don't know if Jonathan knows. Um, I'm not quite up to date on whether it has been done for sure in the US. But like you mentioned, that's exactly what it means. And so that once the patent is removed, other, con um, other companies can make generic versions um, at, at at far more um, accessible rates and costs for many other countries to actually get supply um, of these vaccines. And so I know right now, um, actually not that long ago, um, I was looking at a press conference with uh, Justin Trudeau um, and, and the question came up too, you know, will Canada be part of this? Will Canada sign on for these waivers so that other countries can get supply? And so that's a really, really great point that you brought up, Eric, because Without that, um, you know, it's going to be really difficult for places like India right now, you know, to get the supply of vaccines they need, which is so ironic because they're a mass, you know, they actually mass manufactured a lot of vaccines that we have and a lot of vaccines that a lot of places around the world has, right, especially the one from AstraZeneca. So 
you know, I think it would be really important if, if we could do that. Uh, that's, of course, more of a, you know, a social political um, uh, topic, but an extremely important one in order for us to actually get um, a lot of protection all around the world. I'd love to know why it didn't happen earlier. That sounds like such an important idea. Yeah. It does. And I think that's a political question that I'm not I'm not ready to wade into yet. But I know that they considered doing it uh, many, many years ago for something else. It might have been the AIDS crisis uh, or something to that effect. And they were on the verge of doing it and then dialed it back and decided not to. Uh, but this was the one time where eventually they did go ahead. And it seems to have been something that was quite easy to do. They didn't have to go through Congress and the Senate and all that to, to make it happen. They could just sign the order and say, take this in the world. Well, that's going to be something else, uh, behavior and motivation, uh, another layer for things uh, for you to look at, Jonathan, uh, when a generic version is available that doesn't come with the brand name on it. Uh, how are we going to tell people that it's just as good and that they better take that one as well? Yeah, who knows? There'll be another story or narrative written about that, I'm sure. I'm yeah, so- and you know, it's, it's, it's actually funny because, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the medications that are available to us, uh, you know, there are generic brands to, you know, the generics to the brands <laughs> that we yep. take on a, you know, some people take on a daily basis or we take when we have a headache or something like that. So, you know, it's a lot of these will come back to how it is that we communicate this to the public so that they understand it's just as good. Um, it's just that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't come with the name, but it's essentially the same thing that you're getting. I think that that's super important. And I think that kind of leads into why science at first is so important too, because another kind of threat to the herd immunity is misinformation per se, right? That's why we, that's why this, our initiative started in the first place. We know that it can, you know, conspiracy theories and health misinformation does real harm. Like it's not trivial. It can, it can influence people's health decisions um, like getting vaccinated, right? And, or intent to get uh, vaccinated or uh, wearing masks or physical distancing. So that's why just, you know, that's why this initiative is so important to actually get to correct, to get correct information out there and not this misinformation about what, about who knows what it could be, generic names or, or what have you. I think it's, I think we should get out in front of it maybe uh, by just printing slightly different labels with slightly different spellings, like Pizer without the F and then right like the way they do in the video store I don't know if you remember when Blockbuster was a thing you would go in and you would accidentally rent a movie that actually was called Pulp Friction and had a cover that looked almost like Pulp Fiction but wasn't quite and then was just made by three guys in their basement and I think that could work I, I do remember that Blockbuster right. and Jumbo Video <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> uh We have just a few minutes left. I want to run through just a few things. Uh, Is Bill Gates microchipping us with vaccines? And if so, why? No, Bill Gates is not. (laughs) Um, I will share something that's a little bit funny. Um, So now that we know, um, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates are getting divorced. I've been seeing some memes online. I'm trying to play off of this whole chip, uh, you know, with having chips in the arms of women uh, going off because of the vaccines, you know, but of course, that's all in joke. It's just it's just just Um, but no, no, no chips in vaccines. None of that happening. I don't think such a thing is possible. And also, the one thing, if I'm talking to somebody online who is expressing some of these conspiracy theories, the one question I always ask that I think 
ends up being a good one to ask because it tends to move the conversation in the right direction is to what end, right? You may believe that this is happening. You may believe Bill Gates is putting microchips, but why? What To what end would he be doing that? And how is that going to track you any differently than your phone does or the things that you carry with you every day? Why, right? So I think that's, uh, and I believe that one came from the idea that maybe uh, Krishana, you know about this, but Bill Gates and his foundation were distributing vaccines through Africa for years and years and years. And one of the things they wanted to do, I think, was to put a marker in the vaccine so that migrant communities could just have a quick blood test to find out if they'd been vaccinated rather than having to carry the papers with them from one place to another as they moved. And this is the idea that morphed into down the road, some kind of microchip that they could implant, which is a totally different thing, right? Yeah, that, I actually haven't heard about that, to be honest with you. I, I don't know, <laughs> but um, I, I could see, I could see, you know, that, that, with misinformation, it's always, you know, a piece of, especially misinformation, a piece of real information that's put in this, you know, outrageous context. And so because of that, you know, people are, you know, they get caught off guard, they use this, they they will take some piece of an actual piece of information, and then, you know, rewire the story uh, to tell whatever narrative that they want to tell. So um, I wouldn't be surprised, but um, I'm, I'm not aware of that. Yeah, I, I believe it was a test or an idea that was floated and ended up becoming impractical and they never ended up doing it but just floating the idea down the line somebody will latch onto it uh jonathan what are the things that you see most often and i don't know if misinformation or disinformation i think are two different things what's the misinformation uh, not something created specifically by somebody but something that that propagates on its own that you see most often that you end up debunking well, I, I think Science Up First just does a really great job of that. Like just just questions like if do I still need to wear a mask if I'm vaccinated, like little little kind of things like that. And I we think we had a great uh, it's an analogy like that Swiss cheese model, uh, Krishana, where it basically says we, we kind of need a layered approach. Right. And so it's not just any one um, intervention that's going to stop. We need multiple approaches to help um, battle this stuff. So I think it's just little, like Krishana said, it's little pieces, little kernels of truth. And then it's kind of twisted. The disinformation, you can really start to see the quality of conspiracies come out. And I think one thing that really underlies a lot of, a lot of disinformation is just this, Dis, uh, distrust of scientific authority or distrust of authority in general, that starts to really rear its head. So when you ask to, you know, to what end, it's usually about uh, themes of control or, you know, Pizzagate, like, you know, Democrats are trying to rule the world with God knows how, what, God knows what, sexual pedophile rings and things like that. But it's really about issues of control and people trying to manipulate systems to their own end i think that's a that's a really common theme to any like so when you have a conspiracy the content may shift but you can see underlying uh themes that emerge which is kind of that distrust for uh, against authority need for closure needs to feelings of powerlessness that kind of the unknown and so people are really um seeking to impose their answers rather than misinformation which just tends to be i think just just not not knowing a question and, and then just kind of misinformation spreads because people don't tend to check the accuracy of that and then they can just kind of amplify and spiral on its own we i think statistics canada did uh, they did a survey and they 
they of COVID-19 misinformation and they saw they reported that nearly all Canadians saw COVID-19 misinformation online and about half of them shared it just out of impulse without bothering to check that so I think that's how the stuff can start to pick up and then if you're if you're a person that kind of is a bit more uh, prone to conspiracy mentality then you can kind of layer your own themes onto that and then that stuff kind of amplifies so again that's kind of why science at first is so important because we want to drown that stuff out we want to amplify and support and boost science-based accurate stuff to, to drown out the noise so to speak and I think, I think a lot of that, right, uh, the disinformation that people create is designed to create confusion. And then the misinformation uh, that, you know, people share on their own or that they come up with on their own amplifies the confusion. And I think what Science Up First is doing, and I think the great thing that you guys are doing, is that you're trying to cut through the confusion, right? And, and provide one place where people can go where if I'm not certain about, you know, being pregnant and having this AstraZeneca vaccine, I can go to science up first and I can find out exactly why, uh, you know, whether or not I should be upset about that or worried about that. Uh, so I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And we, and there is a, a piece on the website, which says uh, there's a list of credible sources, which is super important to look for. And, and there's another layer here too. When you look at social media, there is another report put out where they, they identified that, they call it the disinformation dozen, which is these top 12 people that are responsible for all of this uh, misinformation. So I, you know, I won't name all of them, but you know, Joseph Mercola and Kennedy, but basically people that are heavy players in the anti-vaccine movement. And so don't get your information from them. You go to kind of get, get it from credible sources. And uh, we have a great website there. Well, and I think the, I think the problem though, is not that people get their information from them, but that their message gets taken by so many people and moved around that you end up getting it from your uncle, right? <laughs> yes. And that I think is where the issue comes is that it's somebody who might be able to convince you that this is a real conspiracy or that this is a real danger of a vaccine because they are somebody who you might have that conversation with over Thanksgiving dinner uh, on Zoom now, of course, but uh, you know. <laughs> That's exactly right. Thank you both so, so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both. All right. <laughs> Few points of clarification before we wrap up here today. I suggested that Bill Gates and his foundation had looked into placing markers into vaccines. Not entirely accurate. Uh, this was a study that the Gates Foundation commissioned several years ago, looking into a technology that could store someone's vaccine records in a special ink that would be administered at the same time as an injection. Uh, so the idea was that it would be more of an invisible tattoo uh, more than anything else. And while it appears they haven't abandoned the idea, it's still a long way from being approved, rolled out, or operational. I also mentioned that the Biden administration's plan to strip patent protections for vaccines was ongoing. Uh, really, it's the administration backing a call from the World Trade Organization to do so. And as of the taping of this episode, that plan has yet to go into effect. Uh, there is a lot of opposition, which is a political thing I won't get into here, but I did mention the U.S. government having considered doing the same thing at an earlier time and thought, uh, speculated, perhaps it might have been during the AIDS crisis. I was wrong. Uh, it turns out that the only previous time the American government considered stripping a patent was in fact in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. 
Uh, you remember right after the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, there were packages of anthrax that started showing up in the mail across the U.S. So a bunch of news outlets got some, uh, some Democratic senators were targeted. It resulted in five deaths, many hospitalizations, and the Bush administration feared that this was a wave of bioterrorism attacks and expected that many more anthrax mailings were to come. So they wanted to stockpile as much of the anthrax antibiotic Cipro as they could uh, at strategic locations around the country. Now, the only manufacturer of Cipro was the drug and chemical conglomerate Bayer, who said initially it couldn't meet the demand for those stockpiles. And it was at that point that the Bush administration considered stripping the patent from Bayer in the States so that other companies could start manufacturing Cipro to meet the demand. In the end, Bayer ramped up production and the patent was never stripped. Also in the end, turned out not to be a second wave of Al-Qaeda terrorism attacks. Uh, it was just one guy in a lab uh, who ended up taking his own life in 2010 when he was found out. If you'll allow me a brief tangent here, Canada actually went ahead at the time, uh, ordering the drug from a generic manufacturer. But it was ruled that the Federal Health Department had broken its own patent rules in doing so, and so we in Canada ended up paying twice. Once to the generic drug maker Apotex, and again to Bayer. So here in Canada, we received 900,000 Cipro tablets from Bayer, but still had to pay the generic drug man manufacturer $1.3 million as a result of the contract we had entered into with them. And with those corrections, we conclude this episode of Mindful. All errors in the episode were mine, as I am not an expert. Big thank you to Dr. Krishana Sankar and Dr. Jonathan Steya, who were the experts from Science Up First. You can find them online, scienceupfirst.com, and of course on all social media platforms, with the exception, so far, of TikTok. What I am is the communications specialist at the CPA. Mindful is written, recorded, produced, hosted, and messed up with errors by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. <laughs>